got a question for you guys today. A deep theological question. Who likes coffee? Some of you. We are kindred spirits. Uh, who, who, of those of you who like coffee, who likes the smell of coffee? Let's go there. Okay, thank you. All right, it's more of you. Um, I, I really enjoy coffee. Uh, yeah, they, uh, I love, Stillwell's here has these Guatemalan beans that are really, really good. Um, I was given a few years ago at Christmas a, uh, a Chemex coffee maker. And that's what, what, how I make my coffee after lunch. It's really good. But it takes a little while to make it. And so a, a month or two ago, a couple months ago, I bought me a coffee maker that I, I you know, make the coffee at night so that the machine's ready to go when you get up in the morning. And I, I've got that machine here. And so I got this coffee machine. Let's see. I've, I brought some coffee. We're going to make some coffee in church this morning. I hope you're ready for that. So I got this coffee machine at the store, and it's programmable, you know, you set it to go off whenever you're ready. Uh, you wake up in the morning to the smell of coffee. Uh, even if you don't drink it, you can appreciate that, right? You wake up and the house smells amazing. Um, let me plug this puppy in here. Don't look at the time on the clock, because that will drive me crazy that it's not set right, but it was unplugged. You can appreciate that. Uh, and so no matter what kind of complicated coffee machine you've got, I saw a guy this week on YouTube. He made uh, one cup of coffee took 13 hours to brew. It was some fancy, ridiculous coffee machine thingy. That it was a siphon, and it was really weird and complicated, and I'm sure it cost thousands of dollars. I was not about to do that. Um, so I got this machine at the store, and I was like, okay, that's good. I can make this coffee and get ready. It'll be ready for me in the morning. But I got up that first morning, and it wasn't ready. Like, it was on, but no coffee had been made. Like, I could tell it was on. It was hot. The little light was on over here. But no coffee was coming out. It's a waste of 20 bucks getting this coffee machine that won't even make coffee. There we go. And so I couldn't figure it out, and I was really frustrated. You know, I wanted my coffee, and it's not working. You know, I, you know it, it, it could smell it, and it was there. You knew, you could see, you know, it's, it's on. In a minute, you're going to be able to hear it, and it, it makes noise, but you're thinking, why is the thing not working? And even though... I could hear it making noise, and I could see it, and I could open the lid, and I could see the water going. You can't see it, but the water shooting out of this little thing onto the coffee grounds. And I'm thinking, okay, I can see the, coffee, the water there. And what, would, what happened is the water had filled up this section where the coffee grounds were, but it just wasn't dripping down into the bottom. And I came up with a solution. It, it's got this little spring-loaded thing here. And there's too much of a gap in between the carafe and this top part that won't push the spring-loaded thing up to let the coffee drip down. And so I got this, 
jerry-rigged it a little bit. I got a knife out of the drawer and put, put the fat end of the knife under the end of the coffee deal here to push it up into the spring-loaded thing to let the coffee drip down is the way I would do it. So at night, I would get all the coffee ready, and I'd shove the knife in there so it was ready in the morning. And so the coffee machine's sitting there on the counter with the knife sticking out so that it would work. Uh, but I got really frustrated with it, and I started asking the, the deep theological question I'm going to ask you. Is a coffee maker a coffee maker if it doesn't make coffee? I asked several people this morning. Most of them said no. A few of them said yes, it's still a coffee maker. But if it doesn't make coffee, is it a coffee maker? Can I get a consensus? All the yeses say yes. If it, is it still a coffee maker if it doesn't make coffee? All right, all the noes. If it, there you go. That's the purpose for the thing being made. Is it supposed to make coffee? And if it doesn't, I mean, it's there. It's been over-engineered, overthought is the way, the way I thought about it. Whoever designed it overthought the process here uh, and, and, and didn't get it quite right. But let's turn that off. And so a coffee maker, you can, I guess you could still technically call it a coffee maker. But if it doesn't make coffee... You're going to toss the thing out. It's not doing the reason you bought it for. Take it back to the store get your money back. It's not making what it's supposed to make. So the question we ask ourselves this morning is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? How can we define a Christian? If, if a coffee maker is supposed to make coffee, it's still on. There we go. It doesn't even turn off when you turn it off. It smells, it smells great. Um, so what is a Christian? Well, according to Jesus, a Christian is a disciple maker. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, or teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Tony, jump back to verse 19. What Jesus does here is, I mean, it's, it's a common teaching tool, uh, but it's, it's also very Jewish, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is an overview of creation, and then Genesis chapter 2 dives in and gives you some details about some aspect of it. Well, in this teaching Jesus gives here in Matthew 28, the last teaching he gives, uh, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the overarching uh, principle. Go and make disciples. And then he gives two points of how to do that. He defines really what a disciple is. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to do what Jesus says. And here it is. The first thing you do is you go and you baptize people. That means you go and tell them about Jesus they believe in Jesus, you baptize them, displaying for the world that they belong to him. So you make disciples. Disciples are believers, who, are people who have begun a relationship with Jesus. And then, go to the verse 20 there, Tony. You teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So disciples begin a relationship with Jesus, and then they are supposed to do what Jesus said. They grow in their relationship with Jesus. So disciples begin a relationship with Jesus. Disciples grow in a relationship with Jesus. And having people begin a relationship with Jesus, as he assigns his disciples here, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you go and you make disciples. He, he gave them that responsibility, but that was also Jesus' own responsibility, making disciples, getting people to believe. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, 
Jesus told a crowd of people who were frustrated that he was ministering to people who didn't know about the gospel. And Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So he said, this is my purpose for coming into the world, to seek out, to look for, to find and save the lost, to bring the gospel to people who need it. He said, that's why the Son of Man came. But then he gives that assignment to his own disciples in John chapter 20. He said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He says, so I was sent to seek and save the lost. Okay, disciples, this is your responsibility now. I am sending you in the exact same way that I was sent, to seek and save the lost. Matthew 28, to make disciples. And we're not supposed to complicate the process. We're not supposed to overthink the process. I mean, believing in the gospel, it's an easy process. You just believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection. You don't have to do a whole bunch of stuff. You don't have to uh, uh, pay a certain amount. You don't have to say magic words. You just have to believe. It's already easy. We shouldn't overthink it or overcomplicate it. But as tends to happen, we do that from time to time. And that had happened in the the life of the church in, in the book of Acts is they were telling people about Jesus and people were coming into the church who were not like the other people in the church. Uh, They were uh, coming from an unbelieving background or they were coming from a background that made some of them uncomfortable. And so the people in the church started making complicated processes to say, in order to come in, you got to do certain things for it to be okay for you to be in here with us. Well, the disciples got together, the lead disciples, the 12, and said, yeah, you guys are messing this thing up. You're making it hard for people to come to Jesus, and that's not what we're supposed to do. And so they had this huge meeting, and in the meeting, Peter stood up and talked, and Paul stood up and talked. And then finally, James, Jesus' own brother, who's the leader of the church, the pastor of the church there, he stands up and he says this in Acts chapter 15. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And they use Gentiles, the word Gentiles, to mean anybody who was a pagan, a heathen, a non-believer. When a non, he says, we shouldn't trouble them. We shouldn't make it hard for them to come to God. We shouldn't put up speed bumps. We shouldn't say you've got to dress a certain way. We shouldn't make it difficult. If they're coming to God, we should just pave the road, make it as easy as possible. If it's already easy, let's just give them the gospel and not add all this extra rules and stuff. That's not what the gospel is. And so they ended up deciding, okay, we should agree with Peter. We should agree with Paul. We should agree with James. And He said the baseline to becoming a part of the church is believing in Jesus. And so we still adopt that today. And so if this is our purpose then as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is to, to, you know, make disciples, help people begin a relationship with Jesus, help people grow in their relationship with Jesus. Well, what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at one particular scripture in John chapter 1 that lays out a specific process of how to do this of how to help people begin a relationship with Jesus and how to help people grow in that relationship with Jesus. Using the example of, uh, of John the Baptist. This is in John chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 886, if you're using the Pew Bible there. Uh, it'll also be on the screen as well. Uh, John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. Uh, The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you've got to understand something. If you don't know much about the Bible, that's fine. You've got to start somewhere. John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus. Um, 
We don't know ex exactly how close of a relative. We know his mom and Jesus' mom were some sort of relatives, and so that made Jesus and John relatives. And John the Baptist knew he had been assigned by God to help people get ready for the Son of God showing up. And so John's out here in, in, in the wilderness, in the desert, and he's preaching, he's telling people, get ready, Son of God's coming, I'll baptize you, help you get your life turned around so you can be ready when the Son of God comes and, and uh, you're ready to turn to him. And uh, Jesus walks by one day, and John feels impressed by God, and he says that, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that statement doesn't seem that controversial to us today. We may have even heard this statement before from this passage. But to first century Jews, who would have been John's audience, this was revolutionary for a couple of reasons. The Lamb of God would have been symbolic, I mean, it would have been a title to adopt for the Son of God, uh, representing the, the lambs in the Old Testament who were sacrificed for the sins of the people. But what's interesting is we learn from the book of Hebrews is the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament sacrificial system were never meant to take away sin. Basically, they, they, they put sin almost on a layaway program that the sin was, wasn't paid for until Jesus died. That sin was, was put away until Jesus died. So that those people in the Old Testament could still be saved, yes, in the way that they looked forward to the Son of God coming and dying and raising from the dead, in the same way we look back to the Son of God coming and dying and raising from the dead. And so what the author of Hebrews told us was, is those lambs that were sacrificed didn't take away the sin. It just put it on hold for a little while. But when John says this word, Lamb of God, as a title for Jesus, everyone in, in the, his audience, their eyes would have gotten big. Hang on a minute. You're saying this guy walking by is a sacrifice for me to God. And then he makes this next statement that would have really made a bunch of them mad. He said, he takes away the sin of the world. Because the Jews in the audience never would have assumed that the sin of the world would ever be taken away. Most of them would not have wanted the sins of some of those people in the world to be taken away because they didn't like them at all. They were Gentiles. They didn't believe in God. They don't deserve to go to heaven. Would have been their thinking, their thought process. In truth, none of us deserve to go to heaven. But he says, the Lamb of God takes away everybody's sin, no matter what background you come from, no matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, how you dress, how you smell, what you look like, color of your skin, how much money you have. It doesn't matter. He, he takes away everybody's sin. And John the Baptist, standing there, preaching to the people, he points to Jesus and he says, that's how we're going to be saved. That's how the world is going to be changed. So he points to Jesus. Look at verse 30. He says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now John's getting really deep here. He says, uh, He said, Remember everybody, I said before, somebody's coming after me who was actually before me. He's saying, The one who's coming later has existed long before I ever existed. Actually, a few verses before this, back up in the first part of the book of John, uh, it's written that, that the world was created by Jesus, 
And so that's what John the Baptist was saying. He existed way before me, all the way back to creation. Verse 31, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So he says, the Spirit came and rested on him. Now, first century Jews were taught that the Messiah who would come would be carrying the Spirit of God. And so he's saying, that is the Son of God. It's what he's announcing to the crowd. That's him. That's the Messiah. That's the one who's going to save the world. He's right there. The one we've been anticipating for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. He's right there in front of us. We can walk over and touch him. He's right there. You know, let's read this couple verses. I want to point out something that's very interesting. Uh, Verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his own disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So he says it again, points to Jesus again. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now look back up, uh, verse 33. John the Baptist said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. So what sticks out is that John said, I did not know him. Well, we know John had been told that Jesus was the Messiah. And so what we can gather from this and John's other words and other passages is he's saying this was confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God to him. That he'd been told by God, he'd been assigned by God to go out into the wilderness to tell people, get ready, Son of God's coming. He was going to baptize uh, people to help them turn their life around. And uh, he was going to point to Jesus, the, the preparation for the coming of Jesus. And uh, uh, he had been told by God, when you see the Holy Spirit come down and rest on somebody that you're going to baptize, that's the one, confirming to you, that's the one who is the Messiah. And so John is, basically to the crowd, John's giving his testimony that Jesus is the real deal. He's saying, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyeballs. I I saw the Spirit come down looking like a dove, and it rested on him, and it did not leave him, and, and, and that is the man. I had experience with this. I experienced Jesus. I experienced the Spirit there. I saw it with my own eyes, and John's giving his testimony to the crowd. And they're hearing his words. And then he points to Jesus again the next day. And two of his disciples go over there and start following Jesus. And what we have in these words, in this this testimony of John, is kind of a formula of how John introduced these guys to Jesus. The first thing he did was he pointed to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. John, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And then he told the people listening what Jesus could do for them. He takes away the sin of the world. He told them what Jesus could do for them. And then he told his own personal encounter with Jesus, his own testimony with Jesus. This is what Jesus did for me. This is what Jesus did in my own experience. And then John pointed to Jesus again. So he really did a four-step process. He pointed to Jesus, 
He said what Jesus could do for the people listening, take away their sins. He said what Jesus did in his own experience, his own testimony. And then he pointed to Jesus again. And so we have to ask ourselves, as as we introduce people to Jesus and help them begin their relationship with Jesus, which we saw earlier in Matthew 28 is our purpose and what we are here for, uh, is, is to point people to Jesus. He's supposed to point people to Jesus, help them come to Jesus, help them to see what Jesus can do for them. He can provide peace. He can provide strength. He can provide rest and relief, and he can provide life after death. And then we can tell them of a personal experience we've had with Jesus, of our, how Jesus has provided peace for us. I mean, I can tell you time how Jesus has provided peace for me, how Jesus has provided healing in my own family, how Jesus has provided strength personally for me, how Jesus has provided uh, finances when it should not have been there. I can tell you how Jesus saved my life one time. Somebody gave uh, me a, a vehicle, and uh, it was a uh, 2004 Ford Focus. You may have ever driven a Ford Focus? Well, I tell you, I, I will live and die by that car. I did. Because there was one day I was driving, Katie, it was Caleb had just been born, they were at the house, I was running home, it was a Wednesday, to grab some dinner real quick before heading back up to the church in my Ford Focus uh, in Dallas on I-30, I can still see it, uh, at Beltline. And I was going down 30, but then I saw the cars were stopped on the highway. And so I, I mean, it was just all of a sudden, everybody right in front of me hit the brakes hard. So I slammed on my brakes and stopped and then I looked in my rearview mirror just instinctively and saw behind me an F-250 that did not stop. Just right into my rear end of that car. I mean, just crumpled and smashed it all up. Uh, I had golf clubs in the trunk. <laughs> I just remembered that. Um, but, I mean, he hit me just full speed, did not even slow down, just smashed all up into me. I got smashed into the car in front of me, and... Uh, Uh, But then I got out of the car. Airbags didn't go off. But I got out of the car. I didn't have any scrapes, any cuts, any bumps, any bruises. My neck was sore for a couple days after that. But I was fine. Having stood out of that car, and then I I saw the F-150, or the F-250 was a little bit, it was quite a bit better than my car. Uh, And the car in front of me got smashed up a little bit. But uh, then Katie and Caleb came and picked me up. Uh... But it was a unique experience because I never, obviously, you never think you're going to get in a car wreck. You never think your car is going to get plowed on the highway going that fast. And you never think if it happens, you're going to walk away from it with no problems. But when those people gave me that vehicle, I have no doubt they were inspired by the Lord to give me that vehicle because he knew several years later I'd be on I-30 with a big old car coming behind me, smashing into my rear end. Jesus protects. My personal experience with Jesus is he will protect you. Many times you don't even see it. You don't even know it's there, but his hand of protection is there. Sometimes it takes hindsight of years and years experience to know it, but it's there, and he'll protect you and provide for you. And so we give, we point to Jesus, we, we, we tell what Jesus can do. He can provide life after death. We tell what Jesus has done for us. He gave me life. And then we point to Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus today, right now? You can know him. And we tell about Jesus and how they can come to know Jesus. And that's the first part of, of making a disciple is introducing someone to Jesus, helping them begin their relationship 
with Jesus. But that's step two, helping someone build their relationship with Jesus. That comes in the next few verses there in John chapter one. Remember those two disciples went to follow Jesus, verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. That's about four in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now I want to point something out before we read these next couple of verses. We don't see Andrew a whole lot in the Gospels, but when we do see Andrew, he's doing one thing. He's bringing people to Jesus every single time. So Andrew came to Jesus. Look at what he does, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Simon, his experience with Jesus was he received a new name. But I want to back up a little bit to verse uh, 39. So we saw we're to help people begin a relationship with Jesus. We do that by pointing to Jesus, helping them know what Jesus can do for them, telling them what Jesus did for us, and then pointing to Jesus. But how can we help people grow in their relationship with Jesus? Well, it's in that verse right there. They stayed with him that day. They stayed with him. That's a unique word, a special word in the original language. It means they remained. They didn't leave. They remained. In the same way that earlier John the Baptist had said, I saw the Holy Spirit remain on him. What they're saying here is they remained with Jesus. They were together with each other, the two disciples, and they were together with Jesus. They were together with each other and together with Jesus. Because Jesus' own words, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be also. They were together with each other, and they were together with Jesus. So to help somebody grow with Jesus, we're to bring someone to Jesus, and then we're to stay a while with them in the presence of Jesus. A disciple stays with Jesus together with someone else. We don't just say, oh, there's Jesus, and then we run and hightail it out the door. You know, anybody ever been to a, a Billy Graham crusade back in the day? Uh, it's been a while. He hadn't done one since, I think it was 04, 05. Um, well, Billy Graham would go around, and he would preach to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But months before he would show up into town, his team would call as many area Bible-believing churches as they can to get counselors to come and help counsel people when they come to Jesus. But that wasn't the only purpose. The purpose was so that every single person who came to believe in Jesus at one of those crusades would immediately be plugged into a church where they could grow together with other believers, not out there floundering on an island by themselves. And so that's the idea, is to come and remain, remain together with someone else and remain together with Jesus. Now, we're, we're getting to the point here. Let me just prep you. Some of you are about to be offended and try to weasel your way out of a thing in your mind to make some arguments in your mind that we're going to attack. <laughs> but a disciple stays together with Jesus with somebody else. You cannot be a disciple alone. You say, wait a minute, I can be a disciple of Jesus without somebody else? 
I'm going to say it again. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus alone because disciples make more disciples. Disciples make more disciples. The assignment he gave to his disciples was make disciples. To be a disciple, you've got to make disciples. To be, let's just go back to, to Tony. Pull back up Matthew 28. I, I don't think I put it there at the end of the message. Uh, uh, it's back up at the beginning. Matthew 28. What did he say? We're supposed to make disciples. Uh, do Matthew 28, verse 20, if you can. To make disciples, we, we, or to be disciples, we've got to make disciples. And to make disciples, what are disciples? Disciples are those who believe in Jesus and who observe what he commands. So a disciple observes what he commands. A disciple obeys what he commands. So to be a disciple, we have to obey what he commands. And to obey what he commands, verse 19, we have to make more disciples. Did you catch it? To be a disciple, we must obey what he commands. To obey what he commands, we have to make more disciples. And to make disciples, you have to be with someone, bringing them to Jesus and staying with them a while. And anything that prevents us from, from uh, uh, making more disciples must be removed from the process in order to fulfill who we are, to fulfill why we are here, to fulfill our purpose. That's why he gave you all those scriptures at the beginning. Matthew 19 and 20, uh, uh, go and make disciples. Or Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save the lost. John 20, 21, as I was sent, I'm sending you. All that to say, that's our purpose. We, we are here for such a time as this. The baton has been handed to us. Hebrews chapter 13, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that have come before us, and now it's our turn here on this earth to make disciples. To make disciples. And anything that's getting in the way, we've got to remove it. So just as I asked the question at the beginning, let me clear this out here. Is a coffee maker a coffee maker if it doesn't make coffee? I would argue that no, it's not. Because its purpose is to make coffee. That's the whole reason it was made. It can do a lot of other things. Stephanie was telling me you can make ramen in it. You can do all kinds of stuff. You can get creative uh, uh, if you're of that mind. But the reason it was made was to make coffee. And so I had, a, had an epiphany one day. Let me get some more coffee here. Put a little more water in it. Is I thought, well... This thing isn't doing what it's supposed to do. I don't like that knife sticking out of the coffee maker every night. So I pulled out the little deal you put the filter in with the little spring thing here on the bottom that it wasn't doing, and I just pulled that puppy off. Now, this, now the little gasket won't come off. There we go. And so I just pulled that off, and now it's just a straight hole there in the bottom. So now nothing is in the way from the coffee maker doing what it was made to do, what it was created to do, to make coffee. A coffee maker that makes coffee is a coffee maker. In the same way, a Christian is a disciple maker. So is a, is a disciple maker a disciple maker if we don't make disciples? 
if we don't do what we were created to do, what we were set here to do, can we, can we function as followers of Christ if we're not following Christ? We were made to make disciples. So we have to remove every piece within us that's the problem. That doesn't mean you're going to get rid of fear instantly. Now, fear is going to be there. It's going to be there. It's just part of being alive in a broken world. But faith can overcome fear. It's about where your attention is. If your attention is on the fear and the problem and not on Jesus, then all you're going to see is the fear. But the thing about Jesus is Jesus is bigger than your fear. He's bigger than your fear. I quoted it in my prayer right before the message. But let me say, if you're ever looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. New sentence. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So because the Lord is at hand, we don't have to be anxious when we bring our prayers to Jesus. And when we bring our prayers to Jesus, his peace will be provided. So the fear will be there, but when we turn our attention to Jesus... The peace will overpower the fear. And then we will begin to do the very thing we were made to do. Telling people about Jesus. Telling people about Jesus. We will become disciple makers. And so here's the thing. I, I teased it at the very beginning of this whole sermon series, Revision. About five or six years ago, God gave me a vision for our church. But for whatever reason, he would not let us do it. He, it just wasn't happening. And, uh, and I've had it on the dry erase board in my office since I wrote it on there on that day, that day, and it's been there since. Um, but here's the thing about, what is today? The 18th? Six, seven, eight weeks ago, God said, now's the time. Two weeks ago, right here on the front pew, um, he gave me that vision again with absolute confirmation um, that here it is. If we will tell people about Jesus, if these people will tell people about Jesus, we will not have space enough on this property to house all of them. If we will tell people about Jesus, we will not have space enough to, to house them all. If we will begin to tell people about Jesus, we won't have big enough hallways. We won't have enough green pews. If we will start telling people about Jesus, we're not doing it to fill the building. We're doing it to change lives. We're doing it to fill heaven. If we will tell people about Jesus, we will not have room enough for all of them. You can, there, there's a program out there called Who's Your One? Who's the one person you're going to tell? My thought is that's too small. Who's your city, region, area? 
You start with who God gave you. Who are the first disciples you're supposed to reach? Well, he gave you some in your house if you're a parent. He gave them to you as a trust. Here's your first disciples. He gave us five of them, and they're very loud. You can come to our house and help us disciple us. But he gave you neighbors. He gave you friends. He gave you people at the store. He gave you the person at the gas station. Who are the disciples you're supposed to be making? Who are the ones around you? Are you going to be a disciple maker? Looks like I didn't put enough coffee in. <laughs> That's kind of uh, watery. So you're welcome to drink this afterwards if you want. Uh, <laughs> and well, maybe that defines some of us as Christians. We're a little watery. Um, little, not strong enough. Who are you going to make a disciple? Help them begin their relationship with Jesus. Help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. And the thing about growing, helping someone grow in Jesus, it takes an investment of time. It's not easy. And you're going to have disappointments. You may not have a Judas. And Jesus had a Judas. You may not have somebody try to kill you. You may. I don't know. You may not have some, one of your own disciples who hates your stinking guts. But we're supposed to continue no matter what. And we see it with, Je with Jesus' own disciples. They went out to tell people about Jesus, and all of them were killed, except for John. Church history tells us actually he starved to death at about 100 years old. <laughs> Paul, the great apostle, beheaded all because he was telling people about it. He was chased around the entire region with people trying to kill him because he was telling people about Jesus. And telling people about Jesus wasn't his job. Culturally, his job was a tent maker. That's how he made funds. That's how he made money. But you only hear about that once, maybe one time in Scripture because that didn't define him. What defined him was not how he made money. What defined him was Jesus. So we're put here to be disciple makers. To be disciple makers. To make disciples. So who will you tell? Who will you tell? Who will you tell? What disciples will you make this week? What, what would next Sunday look like if we all took, made it our personal mission to tell someone about Jesus in the next seven days? Not even every day. Just one person in the next seven days, if we made it our mission to tell people about Jesus, what would that begin to look like? How would the world begin to change? It would change dramatically from right here into Queen, Arkansas. How did the jail change? Telling people about Jesus. I had a guy call me this week saying, we want to do whatever y'all are doing. I talked to him for like an hour and a half, and I said, well, you got to put Jesus in there. Otherwise, it's not going to work. You've got to have Jesus. You've got to have Jesus. And we've got to care enough to tell people about Jesus. So is a coffee maker a coffee maker if it doesn't uh, make coffee? Is a disciple maker, a Christian, a disciple maker if they don't make disciples? I'll let that just hang on there for a second. Make disciples. Because for Jesus, there is no plan B. He gave it to us. It's in our hands here and now to make disciples. And if we tell people about Jesus, 
we will not have room enough for the people. And here's my commitment to you. This isn't something I'm just laying on you. You go and do it, whatever. I'm going to be doing this too. I'm going to be doing this too. Every opportunity I have, fight that fear. Every opportunity, tell people about Jesus and to help them grow in Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Help them grow in Jesus. And let's together do this thing. Because just like Jesus had his guys that he sent out to do this, he is now here and sent us out to go and do this. Where two or three are gathered in my name, well, here's two or three gathered in his name. And we're going to go out with his spirit to do this thing and change the world. Now, if you need to know Jesus today, it's easy. You just have to believe that he is God's son. He died so all your sins would be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. It's not complicated. You don't have to get perfect before you come to Jesus, which don't because you won't. Just come to him as you are, however you are. Whatever you were doing last night, whatever words flew out of your mouth in the car on the way to church this morning, even if they just flew out into your mind, come to Jesus as you are, and he will begin the process. The process. And it is a process. Believe in Jesus here and now. If you're watching online and you want to come to Jesus, click that button right below that says, I want to make a decision. And we'll call you this afternoon. I will call you this afternoon and uh, uh, celebrate with you and pray with you. But who will you tell? What disciples will you make? What, 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 what pieces of the mechanism are you overthinking and making it too complicated? What do you need to remove that keeps you from making disciples? And let's make these disciples together. We're going to pray here in just a second. And I'd welcome you to come and pray. Come and pray about yourself. Come and pray about our community coming to Jesus. Come and pray and say, God, who do you want me to tell? Who do you want me to disciple? Maybe he's already given you a name and a face or several. And you need to come and pray and say, God, give me the strength. Give me the words. He promises in his scripture that when the moments arise, the Holy Spirit will put the words in our mouths. God, help give me the words and give me the awareness of your presence in those moments. Maybe that's what you need to come and pray. God, help me to disciple my children well. God, help me where I falter and in my own weakness. Whatever you need to come and pray, come and pray that. If you need to know Jesus, I'd love to talk to you. At, during this last song, after the service is over, I'll be here and I'd love to talk to you.